Please turn to Romans 14, today, verses 1 through 12, under the title, the phrases, words come from the text, the strong and the weak. The strong and the weak. Who are they, I wonder? The strong and the weak. Romans chapter 14 and 15, chapters 14 and 15. Now, starting today and over the next few weeks, three, four more even, we'll see. Paul is still working out his call to Christians to, um, from chapter 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ to, to live like Christians and thereby to fulfill the law by walking in love. And now to some particular challenges in Rome that echo in principles across the age of the church. The relationship of believers to Jesus Christ as Lord then is shown to be the critical factor in their acceptance of one another as they struggle with issues of deeply held convictions concerning how to live out the Christian life in particulars. And therefore, issues of, we might say, Christian freedom, and then of judging one another as we each work that out in our individual lives. Paul speaks to these things because they have direct bearing on our life together as Christians, on our witness to the world, and on the call upon us to glorify God. So, Paul will go big in terms of connecting the practical matters of our differences to the bigger issues, the most important truths about us, way beyond our various differing convictions concerning many peripheral things. He will remind us who we are in Christ. He will remind us who our fellow Christians also, therefore, are. He will remind us who is Lord over each servant. And He will remind us who is the ultimate holy, sovereign, all-powerful judge over all things. Well, I want to get going on it today. I had a longer introduction. I want to get going, and I have some more setup after we, after we um, pray and read the text, and then we'll go ahead and, uh, and launch in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We come to it with anticipation, knowing that there's connection to real differences that Christians have, maybe that we've had with one another over the last years or even now. We wonder how to apply the gospel rightly in all situations. And so we seek your help now as we look to your word. Where else would we look? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of truth. And so we look to you and we pray now that through your spirit you'd help us to understand it to be convicted of the truth of it, and to apply it. And for this, we need your help, and so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 14, 1 to 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. 
One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. The holy and inerrant word of God. Now, there are will be three points this morning, but I have one more introductory note before we work through the text. It's about Christian freedom. This note. So this is one of the primary texts used in so-called Christian freedom discussions. As Christians, what are we free to do in the world? What are we bound to and not bound to? Where are the lines and limitations in terms of food and drink, entertainment, language, technology, dress, modesty, sexual practice, so on and so forth, especially where the Bible doesn't forbid a thing? Christian freedom. Christians can typically be quite keen to speak of such things as long as it is about my personal freedoms and trying to make sure that maybe that I'm as free as possible out in the world, in my world. But the subject of Christian freedom is also particularly applicable to Christian wisdom and mutual love in the church. That is, towards our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Christian freedom, understood correctly, means that we are freed to serve each other in love. As Paul has just told us in Romans 13, verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. 
Yes, in Christ we are made free. As justified sinners, Christians are free to do all things not forbidden by the law and subject only to the constraints of biblical wisdom. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians, all things are lawful, but not all things are, are profitable. Therefore, as Christians, we are obligated to oppose, as it were, Pharisees and Judaizers of every stripe, legalists, gospel adders, and preserve Christian freedom with as much energy as, as Paul, that is, when the gospel itself is at stake, when people are undermining the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and chaining Christians to external laws, expectations. Oh, you have Jesus, but do you have, do you have, are you doing? And we chain one another. But we are freed to become servants of Jesus and to obey God from the heart and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. This means that as Christians, we must be equally willing to give up our freedom for the sake of love and so as to build up those brothers and sisters in Christ who are weak in faith when the gospel is not at stake. This can be seen in the contrasting tone between Paul's letter to the Romans and our text and that in Galatians where the gospel is at stake. In Galatians, when false teachers began denying Christian freedom, Paul, very much unlike our text, is ready to go to war. He's ready to call down all of heaven's arsenal against the false teachers in protection of the whole church because those particular errors, what they're adding to the gospel and to the Christian life, what they're adding undermines the heart of the gospel itself. But in Rome, the gospel was apparently not in dispute. There was only confusion about the application of the gospel in life. This is why practical matters are front and center here in Romans 14 and 15 as as Paul wraps up this letter and why his focus is upon the need to use our freedom in Christ responsibly when around those brothers and sisters in Christ who are weaker in faith. The reality of the Christian life is that each of us have different backgrounds, different opinions, different temperaments, and different levels of Christian maturity. Some of us do certain things others feel are positively sinful for them to do, or at least we suspect or feel that others are being unwise or or unloving or dishonoring God or hurting their witness or the like. So collisions are inevitable between such opinions in the church. Such collisions occurred in Rome, in the Roman church, And Paul's response to this problem points to us the ways in which we must attempt to deal with such matters when they arise today for us. We're after biblical truth, yes, but we're after biblical wisdom here because we want to love our brothers and sisters 
while also honoring God and upholding the truth of the gospel. What does that look like when we differ over how to live the Christian life and apply it in various ways? So that's the introductory note. Now let's go to the three points and the text. Point one, verses one through four, Romans 14, the matter of eating all foods. The matter of eating all foods. I've never really had a problem with that. Uh, (laughs) I could could use some talking to these vegetables only people. Paul begins by identifying one group. He calls them the weak. On the surface, it feels um, a little judgmental. <laughs> How dare he? But at least I'm not one of those. You know, we probably all figure the weak, and then informs us of how the strong the other group, are to treat them. And mind you, Paul's words here in this text are primarily to the strong and not to the weak at a pace of two to one to the strong. Verse 1, Paul commands, again, look there, verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. Paul is not making a reference to someone whose faith in Christ is weak in the sense that they barely trust in Christ and are hanging on by their fingernails. They might not even be a Christian by Tuesday. That's not what he's saying, but rather to someone. He's referring to someone who he believes is a real Christian, but who does not understand how to apply the gospel and their faith in a certain area or or several areas. His or her faith is weak in that it cannot sustain him in certain kinds of conduct. He does not understand that when the meaning of justification by faith is fully grasped and pushed into all areas of life, all the corners, that questions like the use of meat and wine in special days, this becomes irrelevant. You're free, Christian. But the weak brother doesn't know that, hasn't applied that. The person whose faith is weak is someone who feels that to engage in certain conduct is a sin, even though such conduct is not expressly forbidden in Scripture. This is a weakness then. We might say a deficiency, an immaturity for now, for the weak. And to be clear again, it is not the case, though, that the weak believed that abstaining from meat and wine and observing certain days, the weak here don't believe that that's necessary for salvation. That's ruled out. There's no hint that they were attempting to improve sorry, impose these requirements on the strong for the latter's salvation. They weren't hunkering in a corner saying, we're the real Christians. None of this is going on. 
It does seem likely, however, that they believed that one would be a stronger or better Christian if one observed their prescriptions. Let's pause for a second and and just comment about the identity of the weak and the strong. The weak in this text, and therefore in the Roman context, we think commentators are largely in agreement, although there's options. But we think that the weak in this text clearly were those who were attracted to and continued to practice observance of the Jewish ceremonial food laws contained in the Old Testament. That is, whether certain foods were clean and and pure, and therefore abstaining from certain foods because they were considered to be ritually defiled according to the Old Testament law. Whereas the strong recognized that with the coming of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament ceremonial law, dietary laws, no longer applied. The most widely accepted view then is that the weak are mainly in this case, Jewish Christians, perhaps including some converts who were attracted to the Jewish Christians' strong convictions and practices, who practiced essentially Jewish customs, and the strong were mainly Gentile Christians, though probably including some Jewish believers who were liberated, like Paul himself was, or we think of Peter, who felt no obligation in these matters. I would note here, too, Paul's tolerance of such practices here, clearly mentioned. Uh, His tolerance of these practices, this suggests this Jewish source as well, rather than if they were, say, importing pagan practices, which he clearly would condemn and condemns elsewhere. He wouldn't let it slide. He wouldn't say, that's fine. Paul would not have tolerated the weak or their convictions in the church if they contended that adherence to food laws was necessary for salvation either. He wouldn't have have put up with that. Paul fiercely opposed this false gospel in Galatians. So the main issue then, and where the rubber meets the road, was how Jewish and Gentile Christians could eat together given these differences. Eating pork was especially popular and considered a delicacy in the Greco-Roman world because it is, I guess, I think, I mean, why, why wouldn't it be? But this would be, as you may know, particularly offensive to Jews. So this matter was very important to Paul since the unity of the church and the loving fellowship of the church depended on its resolution. So that's a bit on the identity of the weak and the strong in, in the situation in Rome. So, despite misconceptions about such things on the part of the weaker Christians, they are to be accepted by the strong. Even so, verse 1 again, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over your differing opinions about it. Paul is concerned that such things might divide the Roman congregation, since the issue here is not the nature of the gospel, but how people who believe the gospel all the same 
are to relate to each other when some of them are weak and others are strong. Paul here is instructing those who are strong not to bully the weak, not to pick on the weak, those who have not fully thought through the matters, nor have come to terms with their weakness. In other words, when someone is still hung up on a basic misunderstanding of Christian freedom, because they have not yet reached maturity in their thinking, the strong must not hammer away on such things or or belittle the weak or shame them. The strong must accept the weak, welcome the weak where they are, and give them space to work through such things. The goal of the strong is not to win this present argument or boast about being strong. It should be to patiently and lovingly build the weak up to their own strong level. Bear with them. But this is a two-way street. The weak, for their part, cannot insist that the strong give up their freedom. This becomes clear in in the following verses, 2 through 4, where Paul writes. Let's read 2, 3, and 4 together, and I'll I'll fill in who's being referenced, just to hopefully that doesn't obscure the clarity. I'm trying to to provide clarity, so I just want to identify in each case who's being referenced. Verse 2, one person... That's the strong one. Believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. That is, the weak person, in this case, abstains from eating meat. Verse 3, let not the one who eats, that's the strong one, despise the one who abstains. That's the weak one. And let not the one who abstains, again, that's the weak one, pass judgment on the one who eats, the strong one. For God has welcomed him. Verse 4, who are you, whichever you are, to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, For the Lord is able to make him stand. This is a real Christian, in other words, we're talking about. In both cases. So, in the Roman church, the strong are exercising faith in eating anything. Everything. There's no Jewish um, restrictions of any kind. The weak were grieved if other believers ate such food. We learn that later in chapter 14. And they felt it was wrong if they themselves consumed it, also later in in chapter 14. And we're tending toward, we see in our text, judging those Christians who did eat without restrictions. Oh, what poor Christians they are. If they were better Christians, they'd be like me. And it's clear in these verses that Paul is saying that their inability to consume such foods was an indication of the weakness of their faith. That's not up for debate here. Well, I don't know, that doesn't sound so weak. Well, you're probably weak then on the matter. Paul makes it very clear that this is a matter of weakness in this case. The strong and the weak are very definable in this text. 
Paul's principle in such matters or even disputes is very simple. Neither is to look down on the other because both are justified sinners saved by grace, accepted before God because of the sacrifice and righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is one place where Paul's emphasis upon minding our own business enters in. You'd think that that would be the opposite of what we normally would say. Our problem isn't that we're involved too much in each other's lives. We want to be involved more. We think we should be involved more. But be careful. You're going to find things when you're involved more with each other and spend more time with each other and are in each other's homes. You're going to find things. Oh, you do, oh, you do it that way. Oh, oh. Oh, you're like that. Oh. Oh, you discipline like, ah, oh, oof. Well, this is one place where Paul's emphasis upon minding our own business enters in. Who are you? Who are you? Why should we even be worrying about what other people eat? In this case, is the idea. The fact that we are so preoccupied with the business of others and what they eat is perhaps one of the sure signs of the pervasiveness of indwelling sin and maybe even that we are weak and not strong, not strong in Christ. Why should we care if someone else is a vegetarian? Is that a gospel issue? I know you can slap that word gospel in front of everything and all of a sudden it's like, we're supposed to take it seriously. But there are real gospel issues, and then there is a whole bunch of things that aren't. Whether somebody eats vegetables or not, meat or not, is not a gospel issue, as long as they don't insist that being a vegetarian is necessary for salvation, for justification. As long as that's the case, as long as there's no place for calling to repentance because they're judging or whatever the case may be, there may be areas for discipleship, and prayer. But there should be no division over such things. And verse 4, there should be no despising and there should be no judging in such matters because, as Paul reminds them and us, God alone is the judge. Therefore, the emphatic assertion to both the weak and the strong, who are you to pass judgment on a brother? or sister, over a matter such as this? To the strong. In both of these verses, the, the exhortation to resist despising is addressed to the strong. Fitting, because those Christians who are more free in their practices are inclined to mock and ridicule those Christians who feel confined. Those who feel free to eat any foods and consider every day the same tend to criticize those who believe certain foods are forbidden and some days are holier than others. The person free from constraints finds it difficult to understand the reasons why other Christians would bridle themselves, would imprison themselves, when in Christ we are free from such constraints about foods in certain days. And since it appears irrational to the strong, 
irrational, it appears, to the strong. They are tempted to poke fun at those who are more constrained by their own weaker knowledge and conscience. We see then that accepting the weak involves respecting them and holding them in honor, even if there are disagreements over what is permissible. The weak. Paul warns the weak against judging the strong. Fitting, because the weak are inclined to condemn and criticize the strong for participating in activities that the weak consider to be improper, unclean, unloving. If the strong are tempted to ridicule the sensitivities of the weak, the weak tend to pass judgment on the strong. They'll say, we are the loving Christians. And so says Paul. But since God justifies all sinners based upon the all who all who are justified based upon the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, all saved sinners, that is, both the weak and the strong believers, will be regarded as righteous on the day of judgment, because in Christ they are righteous. The weak cannot sever the strong from Christ because they eat things the weak consider unclean or because the weak think the strong uncaring or unloving because of it. Nor can the strong sever the weak from Christ because the weak don't pass the Christian freedom test in this area or that. Or because the strong think the weak likely too weak to even be real Christians. The weakest of real God-wrought faith is still real. Perhaps you've heard it said that it is not the strength of a person's faith that saves, but rather the object of a person's faith that saves. And verse 4, Paul assures the weak that the strong will stand. All real Christians will stand, since the Lord is the one who determines if they will do so. By, by taking on themselves the role of judge, the weak are acting as if they are the ones who determine if the strong are saved on the day of judgment. Whether one stands or is saved on the final judgment is decided by the Lord, not by other Christians. The strong or anyone will not stand by virtue of their own strength or ability, but because the Lord will enable them to do so, writes Paul. So to both the weak and the strong, focus less on your brother and sister in such matters. Focus less on your brother and sister in such matters and fix your eyes on Jesus Christ who is Lord and Savior of you both. Now, the second point, verses 5 to 8, and slightly more brief as we go, point 1 is the longer one, the matter of observing special days, the matter of observing, observing special days, verses 5 through 8. So, Paul has 
dealt with issues between the weak and the strong in relation to eating all sorts of food or not, and now he deals with the issues between them in relation to the observance of special days, which is a very Jewish-sounding thing. That's what's going on there again. Though, without losing sight of the matter of foods, he just switches in one sentence. He kind of maybe caught it. He just is talking about days, and then we're eating again, and it's all just packaged together for him. So it's the two opposing groups with regard to both issues. Let's read 5 and 6, and I'll fill in again. One person, so here, this is the weak, the weak Christian. One person esteems one day as better than another, we think the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath. Another, this is the strong, esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, the one who observes the day, that's the weak, he observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, that's the strong. See, we switched there to eating again. The one who eats, that's the strong, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, that's the weak again, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Paul doesn't believe that observance of the Jewish Sabbath, along with food regulations, was binding on the church, neither do we. No foods are unclean. All days are alike. Sabbath and food regulations are considered to be shadows that are no longer in force now that the true thing has come. Jesus Christ has come. The earliest Christians point to the same conclusion, emphasizing that believers keep not the Sabbath anymore, but rather Sunday, the Lord's Day, that they would simply meet on that day, Resurrection Day, and not neglecting to meet together, as important as it was. They do not argue, by the way, that the Lord's Day is the Sabbath. That's put away now for the Christian. They distinguish the two, calling believers to observe the former but not the latter, but not in the same, we might say, as it developed, legalistic way. Now, to be clear, Paul does not criticize those who observe special days, not at all. Both those who Christians estimate, uh, both those Christians who estimate one day above another and those Christians who consider every day the same should be able to coexist together in a local church. Elbow to elbow, arm in arm. It is merely required, according to Paul, that each are fully convinced or fully assured in their own minds. And of course, assumed here again is that neither are insisting that such observances are a salvation issue, and neither is seeking to inappropriately impose their practices on the other, as if that would make one a better Christian or, or not. And further, those who set aside a certain day may even be commended for doing so as long as they do so in honor of the Lord or to the Lord. And they must accept those who do not follow the same practice. How can Paul tolerate, even apparently commend, such diversity in the church, in a local church? 
Well, we've already seen that the weak are not making days and food a matter of justification or salvation. That's key. What matters to Paul, since no absolute moral norm is involved in the issues at hand, are not the specific behaviors practiced, but the motivation that informs the behavior. Again, verse 6, those who set aside special days do so in order to please the Lord. Those who eat all things do so to the Lord. That they eat to the Lord is demonstrated by the fact that they give thanks to God when they partake of the food. Praising and thanking God for food indicates that it's eaten to the Lord, and such eating cannot be labeled secular or sinful. Yet the one who refrains from eating food abstains in order to please the Lord as well. Paul, then, can tolerate diverse practices, even when someone may technically be wrong, but it's not a salvation issue. Paul can tolerate diverse practices which do not violate any biblical or moral norm as long as they are motivated by the glory of God. Isn't that interesting? The same theme emerges in uh, the famous 1 Corinthians 10.31. After a long discussion, chapters 8, 9, 10, on food offered to idols, which is a different thing than this text. But he says there, the famous theme, whether eating or drinking, one must do so in order to glorify God. You can eat, you can drink, you can not eat, you cannot drink, but one must do everything to the glory of God. Verses 7 and 8, Paul now expands upon this doing of all things to the Lord. 7 and 8, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So since we don't live or die to ourselves, and since we Christians belong to the Lord in life and in death, we must regard Christ alone as both Lord and judge of the weak and the strong. That's in the fore of your mind when you run up against such differences. Therefore, all of our conduct as Christians in such matters must be made in reference to Christ's lordship, not our own lordship, over our weak or stronger brothers. It's not your business. Mind your business when the gospel or salvation are not at stake. Mind your business, lovingly engage, and fix your eyes on Christ for the sake of loving the brothers and sisters with all our differences in the lesser things. In all of life and even at the hour of death, the believer's aim is to please the Lord, to bring praise and honor to His name. Both life and death are not under our control, but are in the hands of the Lord, who is sovereign over both. We live to the Lord because His judgment determines the course of life, and because fulfilling His will is the purpose and goal of our life. God has power over our life and death. God's sovereignty over our lives is communicated right there. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Why are you acting like you're in charge of your brother? Oh, you're responsible for him, but you're not his judge. 
In his resurrection, Jesus is Lord of all. Verses 9, and 12, 9 through 12, Paul connects that and concludes, and so, so we. So point three, we will all stand before God's judgment seat, verses 9 through 12. So let's start with just nine. For to this end Christ died and lived again, there's resurrection, that he might be the living Lord both of the dead and of the living. So Christ is the Lord of both the dead and living by virtue of his death and resurrection. He's conquered death through his resurrection. Now verse Verses 10 through 12, Paul draws implications now for the matter at hand, the weak and the strong. Let's read verse 10, verses 10, 11, and 12, the last verses today. Why do you, in light of all of this, the weak he's talking to, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Now he's talking to the strong. Why do you despise your brother? For we will all, that is all of us Christians and indeed everyone, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. There, that doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. It means what verse 12 says it means. Paul says, So then, each of us will give an account of himself. To God. Since Christ is Lord and judge, it is wrong for some believers to judge or despise other believers. Verse 10. You are not judge over your brother or sister in Christ. Don't look down on or resent or despise a fellow believer, one who is saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, same as you. All believers will stand before God's judgment seat. Together we will all bow before Christ. Let's be doing that now, in other words. Together in this life. And as we finish up, a few things should be said, I think, in terms of emphasis and application. And we'll be going over these same things over the next few weeks. This subject is the subject now for a while. The rest of chapter 14, half of 15, the same subject and theme of two two application things. I I hope there's been application throughout. I I am not, as it turns out, disgusted with a few brothers about whether I was just going to tee up a bunch of examples (laughs) of how we work this out, but I'm not going to do that for you today. I'm not going to do that for you. I'm not bringing up masks today, brothers and sisters. I'm not bringing up vaccines today. I'm not bringing up homeschooling today. You can ask me in private, and maybe it'll come up in the coming weeks. But uh, my sense is that we need to get these themes, these principles, and we need to let the Holy Spirit convict and lead and teach. You don't need me first to tell you what to think. You follow? Two things. First, Pharisees and Judaizers, those insisting on adding to Christ, must be opposed whenever they appear in our midst. There is no quarter. When it's Galatians, we defend. 
we jump into defense mode and we root out false gospels. When it's Romans, we welcome our differing brothers. You see? That is to say, heresies, teachings that would undermine the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, teachings that would say that we must have Christ plus this or that practice or custom in order to be saved, teachings, that is, that would add to the gospel and thus undermine the gospel in our midst. Oh, no, we're not having that. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, we cannot be subjected again by false teachers to a yoke of slavery. There will be no call in those days to welcome them. We will cast them out. Do you understand? We must have Christ and all of Him, and not more than Him, because in Him we have everything already. We must never turn back. That was the thing with Galatians, right? What are you doing? You're turning back from the gospel. We must never turn back, nor allow those in our midst who would bind us to the spirit of the age or to to new manifestations of the old heresies. We cannot allow anyone to compromise the integrity of the gospel. The gospel sets us free. It does not enslave us. So that's a refrain we'll hit again and again. Another thing, a second thing. The primary principle, however, that Paul sets forth here is that the love for the brothers and sisters is paramount. We must do everything in our power to preserve the unity of the church and not fight about things as basic as food and drink and special days and perhaps dozens of other things I've not named this morning. Use your discernment, brothers and sisters. Be wise and then be loving. When the gospel is at stake, people's feelings, yes, are secondary. We're not ruled by your feelings. But when the gospel is not at stake, and this takes maturity and discernment and wisdom, our love for our brothers and sisters, despite their weakness, fulfills the law of love. And God is honored and Christ magnified. Paul's challenge is based on the fact that God has graciously welcomed a diversity of people into relationship with himself. Everything must be for the honor and glory of God. And our relationship with God in Christ makes us brothers and sisters who should not judge or look down on one another, but love and encourage one another in devotion to Christ. Now, further reflection, discipleship, growth on the gospel and the whole Bible over time may challenge the legitimacy or continuing helpfulness of certain practices and convictions held by who Paul would consider weak. But Paul warns about the way such challenges are expressed to one another. We are ultimately accountable to God as judge for the way we behave. Love is paramount. So, take inventory of your own thoughts on this, your own default with regard to Christian freedom, particularly in relationship to the brothers and sisters. Take inventory of your own actions and behavior. Unless you are perfect or nearly perfect, which I doubt you are, that will be enough to keep you busy for a very long time and we'll all be better off 
as you're working on yourself with the Lord's help, than nitpicking everyone else's peripheral things. You'll help others better that way too. And do what you can to build up the body. Being judgmental tears down. Modeling in prayer and gentleness and patience, wouldn't you know it, fruit of the Spirit. Gentle discipleship, a loving coming alongside. These things build up. And these things are what we need most. Welcome one another. Receive and accept one another into sweet unity and harmony and fellowship on the basis of the glorious truths that God has accepted the believers from whom we may differ most. God alone, not you or I, is the final judge. And God Himself, with sovereign, sovereign uh, preserving grace, We'll see to it that every believer perseveres in faith and stands upright and full of joy before the judge on the last day. Welcome the brothers. Love the brothers. And so fulfill the law. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray now, as I've already spoken, that we lean now on your spirit to convict and teach, lead to repentance and growth, to apply these things. Pray, Father, that you would grow us in love towards one another and discernment and wisdom to discern threats to the gospel, to discern when a particular error in the life of a Christian, though it may not be a salvation issue, but that it would need confronting gently out of love. Not despising, not judgment. Oh, Father, I pray that you would work in our midst in these ways and use your word to build your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.